On this episode of The Letterboxd Show, we're talking to documentary maker and Letterboxd member Alex Winter, who you may know best as Bill S. Preston Esquire. I'm Gemma Gracewood, the Editor-in-Chief of Letterboxd, and welcome to The Letterboxd Show. In this episode, we're talking to none other than Bill S. Preston Esquire himself, Alex Winter. Uh, He has two new documentaries out this year, Showbiz Kids on HBO Now, and Zapper, which is coming at Thanksgiving. And of course, he stars in the brand new sequel, Bill and Ted Face the Music. To share the fun, I've got Letterboxd's Lists editor and Bill and Ted fan Jack Moulton here. Hi, Jack. How are things? Hi, Gemma. It's great. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to Alex. How excited? On a scale of, like, one to most triumphant. Most triumphant. (laughs) So, um, what? I mean, I find it very hard to actually form words around uh, uh, my love for the Bill and Ted movies what part do they play in your life oh my gosh i mean i it was probably my first favorite movie when i was 10 and i i had it recorded off the telly watching it on vhs with all the adverts in between you know it, it got me into rock and roll and i'm i'm still air guitaring today like that's so interesting to hear you say that because i like the last thing it did was get me into rock and roll. I guess maybe I was already into rock and roll or, you know, had two older mm-hmm. siblings and so they'd sort of taken care of that for me. And and in, and in any case, our taste sort of skewed more alternative than American rock. But, like, you grew up in England. I grew up in mm-hmm. New Zealand. Bill and Ted is, you know, about two guys from the valley. Uh, how did it transcend those international borders for you? I don't know. I get. I mean... I'm living like really close to the valley now. So maybe Whoa. it was very much a part of why I moved as close to San Dimas as I could. You know, the first time I went to San Dimas, it was magic. It's like the first time I ever cared about football. Wow. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and football. San you know, Dimas High School football rules. Oh, you mean American football? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Because oh, I was going to say, you, you, you're you born in England caring about... Oh, I don't football. care about English soccer. <laughs> oh, don't let, don't, let, <laughs> don't let your forebear too say that. But anyway, oh, that's so interesting. I I think for me, I mean, I grew up not you know anywhere near San Dimas, but I grew up in the suburbs. And I mean, deep mm. suburbs where nothing exciting ever happened and you had to make your own fun and... I, I think for me, just even the opening of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in the garage, I immediately mm. felt seen. You know, me and my brothers went to see that movie together and then we went again and then we went again and we went again. That was probably the first film that we went to the cinema multiple times to see and then to the video store multiple times to rent. And yeah, there was just, I mean, of all the 80s movies that we consumed Ferris Bueller, Top Gun, Dirty Dancing, you know, all all of them. I think Bill and Ted was the one that sort of skewed so closely to the kind of uh, slightly inept, doofusy teenagedom that we were actually living. Yeah, people love to call them stoner movies, but they're not even stoners. Just not even stoners. They're not (laughs) like it's 
what they are. And I'm going to bring this up with Alex Winter. I don't know what you're going to bring up. You can tell me in a minute. But I am determined to ask about the lack of mothers in Bill and Ted's lives. Mm. Because I feel like they get a bad rap for being stupid. And that's, you know, because they're going to fail history. But they're mm. not stupid. They're just uh, um, aimless. Well, there's a naivety about it yeah. that was so endearing. And it's a naivety that's in the characters and also in the writing of it too. Yeah. But they're just like, they're aimless. Like one of their dads is just a, you know, military loving asshole. And the other one's taken their old schoolmate for a bride. It's your mom, dude. And <laughs> so weird still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. For me, yeah, for me, I think it just is, it's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure skewed so closely to my teenagehood, and then Bogus Journey. You know, as a you know, we're a few, you and I are a few more years along in our film loving journey. It's the it's the early nineties. We've sort of pretty much moved into cinephilia probably by this stage. So actually, but still with that nostalgia of uh, you know the eighties movies, but actually Bogus Journey sort of fit really well in that in that gap between cheesy mm-hmm. 80s films and uh, starting to watch more serious films because it's so psychedelic. It's so weird. <laughs> like, There's just, no time travel or anything. There's no time travel. Just, they just go to hell. It's kind of religious, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Which is odd. Yeah. It's like, sure, God exists, and there's also the devil and death. Of course. Right. And, we, you know, I don't know if you were brought up religious at all, but when you're brought up religious, you're brought up, you know, to pretty much mm. anything you do bad, you're going to go to hell. And to see hell depicted on screen and such. Aren't a- those the most traumatic hell visions ever when they are <laughs> little kids and his Alex Winters playing his own grandmother coming to kiss him? I couldn't watch it. Oh, when I the watched room, it just the before. Doors. The oh, the corridor with all the doors. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think no, I'm actually black, like, I've. I've Blacked that out from my memory. You should. You should. Yeah. Do not revisit it. You All can right. skip that part. <laughs> okay. So, um, what is the magic ingredient in the Bill and Ted franchise for you? You know, it's it's just the goofy promise of rock and roll. That's <gasps> what I love. Because you know, rock and roll is like, yeah, it will unite everyone. It will give peace on earth. But that's the only movie that actually just follows through on the whole promise. Plus, I love you know, it's it's the epitome of the eighties type guitar music where the the riffs are so clean and by the time bogus journey came out it was grunge and gritty and it's like bill and ted's excellent adventure soundtrack was outdated three years later let alone 700 years later i, I love um uh was it walk away by bricklin oh yeah um, and Two Heads Are Better Than One, which is a strange homoerotic song to have in the soundtrack. Yeah, but... But it's just so much fun. Which, yeah. which is your favourite song? Um, I mean, I, I just keep coming back to, and I never even knew who Robbie Rob was at the time, mm-hmm. um, or whether the song was made exclusively for the film or whether it was one of his that they picked up, but I just keep coming back to that beautiful song in time. No. which is playing when in the first movie when they arrive in the future mm-hmm. and Clarence Clemens this, oh yes you know from the east street man. man the big man himself 
and uh, is is just there going, oh my god, you know, like everyone's just so happy to see them, and they're like, oh, I think they know us, dude. This is so lovely. But anyway, that beautiful song is playing. They have excellent like, mu- music in the future. <laughs> they have excellent music in the future. Um, so <laughs> we've both seen Bill and Ted face the music. Uh, no spoilers. What's your hot take? Mm-hmm. Did they nail it? it? Oh yeah, it's it's definitely consistent. With Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey, it's nice to see them recapture that spirit. What did what did you think? I, oh, I mean, first of all, it's twenty twenty. I have to say that um, watching a, a brand new Bill and Ted movie on a screener in my living room alone in the middle of the day <laughs> is not the ideal way to watch a brand new <laughs> Bill and Ted movie that you've waited twenty mumble years for. Um, and we had, we had, um, you know, this, I, this will be interesting for the listeners. We had a, often you get a screener and you get like a week to watch it or you get like, you can watch this five times. Uh, in this case we were, you know, sent through a kind of two or three step security process. And then we had four hours and we had to nominate the four hours that it was going to be. And so I was just like, I got four hours. I'm watching this back to back. So the first, you know, the first time I watched it through very much with this, impending conversation with Alex Winter in mind oh okay diligently watching and noting down questions and then I sat there and I had this sort of strange you know 2020 feeling of loneliness and emptiness and um you know like just not being satisfied and I went what is wrong you know what's wrong I need to make a some microwave popcorn and just watch this crazy stuff all over again. <laughs> and I just did a second rewatch imagining that I was with, you know, my brothers oh, and my childhood friends and it all just came home. And all I will say to anyone who hasn't seen it yet is if you are a fan of the Bill and Ted movies uh, and you go on expecting nothing more or less than a Bill and Ted movie, it will be a five-star Bill and Ted movie experience. <laughs> At least. <laughs> and, yes. Yeah. And that, like, I don't want to get into the ratings game, but I will also add that anyone listening who knows me knows that I, I my taste sort of falls squarely in the 3.5-star area of kind of cheesy delight, and this is this is definitely that. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm happy. I'm happy. I think it wraps Great. up a lot of... Yeah, it wraps up a lot of the... Um, it covers a lot of the logic flaws, not flaws, but, you know, logic holes in the, yeah. in the first two. Yeah, and it also it fixes some of the mistakes that the creators made as young men when they didn't know better. Mm-hmm. And Ed Solomon, who's one of the writers, has tweeted a lot about this, and it's really worth keeping an eye on his on his Twitter thread and go, going back through some of the kind of more mic drop conversations he's had with rabid Bill and Ted fans. I think for me, uh, one other thing that the sequel does beautifully, and, I, and, it's, and it's definitely a product of all of the creators being much more experienced, like having another couple of decades of work in script writing and movie making under their belts, is, is they've done some, they've, they've come up with some really elegant solutions to a few of the problems they had in the first couple of films because they didn't know any better because they were young men so you know it fixes the slurs it fixes the the agency of female characters yeah I think mostly it fixes the stakes 
that the first one definitely had a logic problem with that, which just it just gave me an existential crisis for the last you know twenty years. So Wait. I, I kind of want to bring that up with Alex, see if he knew about it, see if he thought about it, see what he thinks. All right. Well, let's get to our esteemed guest who's waiting in the wings, the actor behind William Bill S. Preston Esquire, one half of Wild Stallions, who's back in a new Bill and Ted adventure, but also a writer, director, producer behind a string of documentaries about the deep web, music piracy, blockchain, offshore tax havens, Hollywood's child stars, and coming soon, the great Frank Zappa. Hello, Alex Winter. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. How are you guys doing in all this craziness? Yeah, New Zealand is back in lockdown. Well, the part of it where I am, so yeah. we're not quite as smug as we were a week ago, but uh, still grateful for um, good leadership in this time. Yeah, you. I mean, New Zealand has done such a fantastic job of keeping this thing under control. It's been, it's been great to see. Yeah, it helps to have, a, I think, a small population and a smaller government. Maybe. Yeah, small population, sane leadership. I think there's a few things going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. So um, uh, Jack and I were trying to figure out where to even start. I mean, do we get our Bill and Ted fanboy, fangirl stuff out of the way first, or do we dive into your documentaries first? And then we thought maybe we split the jobs and Jack can go fanboy and I'll try to ask the serious questions. But uh, actually, the first question is, you actually joined Letterboxd, which is exciting, but do you need some help? filling out your diary or do you have any other technical questions we can help you with <laughs> no i think I, I think i'm good I, I mean i've been i've been active on on internet based communities for a very long time and i i enjoy them um and i like the ability to just lurk if you want to lurk or engage if you want to engage and uh letterboxd is a you know has become a really important community and is it's a great way to connect with with other filmmakers as well as with I mean, the thing I've always loved about the internet, the good sides of the internet, because obviously there are many, many sides of it that are not so great, is is the kind of democratization of it and how it kind of flattens down walls and allows you to to genuinely communicate with lots of people um, about shared interests. And it's nice to have that in the film community. Definitely at this time as well, isn't it? With the, yeah. with, with just not being able to jump on planes and see each other and have those festival experiences and I guess speaking of which Zappa masterful new film about Frank Zappa was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest and so you know every every filmmaker is missing out on those experiences this year but it is coming to theatres and video on demand at Thanksgiving it's uh Jack and I both watched it this week mm-hmm. thanks for the screener it's oh, great. an incredible vital archival love letter to 
a great American musician and composer. It's beautifully assembled. It's really well told. And you got to some important people just in the nick of time. Alex, um, you know, Bill and Ted, when I was 10, it got me into rock and roll. I've been air guitaring ever since. And now you've made your first rockumentary. Is this the beginning of many profiles? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's a funny thing. First of all, I appreciate, um, you know, that you guys like the film. I, I didn't I didn't even know you'd seen it. So that, um, that's really, really good news. Uh, could have been bad news. <laughs> Um, uh, because yes, the, the festival rollout, which was pretty robust, crashed and burned along with, you know, the rest of the planet coming to a grinding halt in early March. And that's very, very hard for independent films. Um, you know, it's been very challenging figuring out how to platform Bill and Ted in this climate, but for, you know, a little indie, um, documentary, it's, it can be fatal so uh it's been a very challenging summer as it has been for i think any filmmaker who who had a film that was a due to hit the festival circuit um and i'm really grateful that we have now found a home with magnolia and they're so lovely and they get the movie and we're kind of roll out at the end of november they're a good bunch of people and surely zappa has enough of a following that that at least at the very least the zappa fandom will wrap their arms around this surely yeah i think that the reason I wanted to make it was that um, that I do think his story is very, very interesting on just a human level. And I do think that it had never been told. There had never been access to all of his archive before. So I, I was really hopeful for a sale and for the ability to get this out into a, into a, uh, a wider marketplace. I think that was, um, that was my first biggest question was this extraordinary archive, which you have... Uh, you know, beautiful dolly shots of in the film. How was it you, you know? How did you get this access? And I understand it was a sort of two-step process of first restoring it and then and then crafting the story with it. Yeah, I, I, uh, my producer Glenn Zipper and I pitched the idea of making a, f- uh, a film about Frank to his widow, Gail Zappa, who is uh, now no longer with us, very sadly. And Gail uh, had run the Zappa record label all through his career and, and uh, was, a, was a kind of a titan in her own right. And uh, she, she happened to really like our take. And, and um, you know, just to, in a way, to uh, circle back to your first question, uh, my take wasn't to make a rock movie. Um, I don't really, I love rock movies. Uh, I don't really make them. So I, I tend to focus on stories about um, about people engaged with their times, whether they're artists or in technology or criminals or whatever they are, or, you know, children in show business, which is the doc that I just finished. Uh, Zappa was compelling to me because he was this incredible artist who was very, very engaged with his times and very uh, dualistic, had a lot of facets to his nature, some of which seemed to be in complete collision with the, with each other. And that interested me greatly. And that was really what I pitched to Gail was a movie about a man in conflict with himself and with the times. And uh, she was really warm to that. And so she said, you know, what would help you if that's the story you want to tell is if you had access to his archives, which no one has ever been granted that before, um, which was a blessing and a curse because there was a lot of it and a lot of it was in disrepair. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we had to uh, we had to do a crowdfunding campaign and raise uh, quite a bit of money um, in order to preserve all of that material before we could use it for the, the documentary. But what a gift from Gail to even say that, to even unlock the door. All right, this is a song that, that we've been work, working on in secret for a, a while now. 
going to make an attempt to record it. If we mess it up, we'll just stop and do it mm -hmm. over again. It doesn't have a name yet, but it uh, doesn't really need one. Did you always intend to tell the story in an experimental style of Zappa, or did the what you found in the archive kind of dictate that? Um, I think a little of both. I think that I wasn't interested in telling a, a, a conventional uh, story because he's just such an unconventional person, and I didn't mean I don't mean that in a in a kind of novelty way. I, I wasn't really looking for a novelty form, and I in fact you know Zapper as a person I knew was actually a fairly sober person. I mean, meaning you know pretty pretty serious and not a kind of a goofy irreverent person um, off stage. So um, I was really intent on trying to make it as experiential as possible, and and to try to get the audience into Frank's life and into his world and into his, his, uh, the sort of the, um, the nuanced of kind of a ephemera of his, of his, of the biographical details in his life. And the, 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 but the media really helped me there. Um, we were finding a lot of incredible stuff, uh, that supported that kind of telling. Um, and so we just dug into it. We didn't have to, Mike Nichols and I made a, a commitment at the beginning to really dig into that stuff and, um, and also to, to create an act one that would be aggressive enough that it would prepare you for kind of whatever direction we wanted to take the film after that, if we didn't lose you completely. <laughs> so, um, so that was a commitment as well early on was like, let's really push the first act. And if people can kind of last through this, they'll be fine for the rest of it, but they'll, they'll kind of get what we're, what we're doing. Oh, it just as such a ride. And, uh, you know, definitely the structure helps you stay until the end because I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I'm the world's biggest Zappa fan just purely through ignorance and of course now it's like I'm all about watermelon and the hay um, <laughs> yeah, it's, the best, it? <laughs> and it's just so good. so good and also I think you know one of the absolute successes of the film is is the talent Ruth Underwood is a completely wonderful voice in the film you, yeah. you know Gail the fact that you have Gail in the film and that she has the single best line when she's talking about the nature of 360 deals in the oh, record yeah. industry. And she's like, which, what does she say? Which means they own all the parts of your asshole and everything coming out of it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. She is, yeah, she's wild. Anyway, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing and I could talk all day about that film, but we've got others we need to talk about. But first of all, what's the was there a documentary that made you want to be a documentary maker? Um I don't know if there was a single documentary. I liked a lot of very um, sort of off the beaten path docs when I was coming up as a film student. I love, you know, Land Without Bread, De Bunuel. I love Chris Marker and what Marker was doing kind of experimentally. And there was a lot, you know, I, I was at NYU in the, in the early 80s. There was a lot of, and I was a photo minor and a film major. So there was a lot of kind of the beginning of experimenting with narrative and the blend between narrative and and nonfiction storytelling uh, was kind of happening, was even happening in photography at that point. So both the photo work you were doing and the film work you were doing kind of played with those things when I was studying. Um, and a, a lot of that was going on in the film community around me, uh, including the, the, the big experimentalists like Brackage and people who were, who were really taking kind of bold steps with the medium at that time. Um, one of my very favorite documentaries is uh, Robert Frank's Cocksucker Blues. Well, I have nothing else to look for except the group that will make me happy. I'm a very sad, lonely person. You know? Yeah. I had terrible things. They took my child away from me because I was, I was on acid. 
Now what's wrong with what, you know, like what's wrong with the with the mother that's on acid, like and loves her child, and then then the state comes along and takes my kid away because because I take acid. She was born on acid. You know? And I think that was. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of the uh, things that made me really want to try doing this kind of storytelling where you, the filmmaker is kind of there, but not becoming an obtrusive part of the storytelling, but you kind of can't have the storytelling without it. Um, and I think it also, I liked his photography a lot coming up as a, as a photo uh, photographer. And, um, and that's why I've always kind of bristled at this sort of this new world we're in right now where people are disparaging filmed interviews, which they call talking heads for some reason, which yes. I, it to me is so like incredibly disrespectful to your subjects and to the whole idea of, of like photo portraiture and, and subject portraiture. And, and I love shooting portraits of people. And I honestly could, I could, I honestly could just make docs that were nothing but one person talking to camera after the other. I'd be very happy doing that. But I know that <laughs> it is, it is frowned upon by the filmmaking community. Oh, they can, yeah, they can take a jump. No, yeah. I mean, I could, yeah, I could watch people talking all day. And there's something, I'm glad you said that because there's something in showbiz kids that, that I really noticed that you, that you lean into across your documentary making, which is this, you know, breaking rules about filming people against windows and glass doors. And in fact, you fling the door open and we can see through to Will Wheaton's backyard. And so you're really placing them in, in home, you know, you're not just kind of chucking the expert against a, a bookshelf full of books to suggest that they're well read, which is just, you know, feels extraordinarily lazy. You, you are working on the portraiture. Yeah, I mean the the thing for me with, with Showbiz Kids was I wanted to drive headlong into this idea of of, of portrait conversations, uh, and the film is really primarily uh, an ensemble of conversations that all blend together into one conversation, and that a lot of their stories are are very similar, and a lot of their worldviews are similar, and I really wanted it to just be a kind of an intimate expression uh, or an intimate portrait of people who had lived through these experiences, kind of conveying the nuance of, of that experience. And and that was my concept from the get-go. And I was really grateful that uh, both Bill Simmons and HBO were supportive of doing it that way. And they kind of stuck with it all the way, which was nice and lucky <laughs> to some degree. Yeah. I was just curious, in what ways was making this documentary a personal therapeutic experience for you? Because you knew most of these people, right? I mean, I knew them. I knew some of them. I didn't know all of them. And I didn't know any of their stories that well. I knew some of them cursorily. I suppose I knew Mara's the best because she'd written a book. And Henry and I had made an independent film together. And we talked quite a bit on set. But I didn't know the details of his story, uh, Henry Thomas. So it, it was it wasn't therapeutic um, only in that I've I you know was a child actor and I went through actually quite a bit of trauma and then I did a lot of work on myself and I left acting for a while to kind of get my head together and did a lot of therapy and all of that. So by the time I got to making this film, I really felt I'd worked through those things. But it it's, it was still very emotional and very cathartic. I've seen a lot of beautiful young people and children. You know, I've seen them, um, yeah, I've seen them just be destroyed. My parents were always telling me, 
you have to be happy and, and smiley when we're meeting people. You have to be glad to meet people and you have to be nice to your fans. And it could be hard for me sometimes. I struggled with it because sometimes I just wanted to hang out with my friends. I didn't really want to, you know, be signing autographs and doing all these things. I, I felt kind of uncomfortable with it. I had some kind of imposter syndrome. But I started picking up on things and it happened from a young age. I, I noticed like much older men uh, being interested in me and knowing my name, which felt wrong to me. I remember Googling my own name, which was a terrible thing, and I saw people like talking about Photoshop child porn for me. It was hard for me sometimes to talk to my parents and my family about this because I felt like I was a burden on them. I felt ashamed. My parents tried to protect me from these dangers, but I could sense them, I could feel them, and I knew that there were times when they just weren't going to be able to protect me. Um, I'm not you know, emotionally disconnected from my history. Um, I've just resolved a lot of it. And it was very powerful and, um, and very moving and very surprising. There were things people were saying that were kind of opening up things about my own childhood that I hadn't thought about or hadn't thought about in that way or that I didn't realize was shared experience. And I think that was something that a lot of us felt that, that worked on the film. Uh, Mara Wilson and I spoke about this and I've talked about it with, with Todd Bridges and with, with Evan. Um, that there were things that we that we knew about our own history that we didn't think anyone else had experienced. And in talking about it in the course of the film, we realized that those experiences were shared. And I had that very powerfully with Diana Carey. The, the, she was 100 years old when I interviewed her. And she was probably the first giant uh, child star with Jackie Coogan back in the silent era. And she just opened her mouth and the, the, just the very abstract details of her life were almost identical to mine. I didn't know what a regular kid was because I didn't have any friends. There were certain limitations. I didn't know there was another world out there for children. And the life of a child was not my life. Yeah, and like a century apart, and also that those memories were so fresh for her, which which speaks to how significant those experiences were, right? I think yeah. I think the thing I love the most about the film is that it was, apart from the odd parent of the two contemporary child actors you followed, that it was told only in the voices of child actors, and yeah. that that. A, yeah, that's obviously a deliberate approach. Why was that so important for you? I think that that I had never seen a film or even a book that allowed the actual subjects, the, the people who had experienced being a child performer, just telling their own story unencumbered by some kind of other framing device or agenda. Meaning this is a film about, about sexual abuse and... Uh, here is, you know, the subjects and I'm going to frame it all in, in terms of just that. And, you know, that's an important thing to do. I, I absolutely love Dan Reed's doc on Michael Jackson. I thought it was, it was just staggeringly effective, um, uh, kind of hard to watch, but, but yeah. it's a, it should, it should be, and it's very important and it needed to be done. It's extraordinary that film, extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. But I, I, that was not at all what I wanted to do. And um, I really wanted to follow the life of a child actor from, from the beginning of the process out the other end and into adulthood and then retrospectively looking back on it, but from the perspective of those people only without any, um, any outside voice. And uh, 
And that was sort of the concept from the beginning because it's just what I had never seen. Yeah, it does something really wise because I, I guess the expect, expectation is that because you yourself are a survivor and it might be that the film itself would have leaned further into into the sort of history of harm of young performers, but actually in in grounding the the whole story, sort of building the the full picture of the experience of a child actor across the spectrum from them wanting to perform to the experience of performing to the experience of behind the scenes. You, you've done something more important, which is lay the groundwork for those other conversations to continue into the future and for Hollywood to sort of see children as full humans at the age they are, which is something society's already, always really struggled with around children, right? Yeah. That, children are people too. I mean, that sounds stupid to say it, but. No, that was that was a big part of what I was hoping to convey. And, and you know, the other aspect of that is that um, with, with all of the documentaries that I've done, especially ones that have, you know, any proximity to what could be called an issues film, for whatever reason, I really do shy away from, uh, trying to um, put, you know, spend the whole film putting forth a thesis, uh, and I, you know, to me, the the uh, the humanity of of a face on camera and um, and that experience on camera, or the experience of the of the of someone's kind of biographical details, like in the case of Zappa. Um, there's a lot of richness there. You know, audiences can be impatient. They can want you to just dig into one area or to spend more time trying to sort of examine or unpack a theme. Um, but for me, I, you know, my view on narrative in documentaries is I, I really do like not doing that so that I can spend time in, in, the, in the kind of more nuanced and abstract areas of, of personal expression. So for me, I'm just, you know, I'm just as I find that I, I dig in more emotionally if I if I'm left that space to dig in, um, but what I'm digging into is different. I'm not I'm not digging into, oh, let's find out more about sexual abuse and let's make this movie about that or let's make this movie about how uh, exploitative Hollywood is. Like to your point, go read a magazine. Like you know, <laughs> go go you know put the film. Go do that. Like I I want to yeah. be I want to live in the spaces between Evan Rachel Wood's emotional expression as she's reliving something that was very powerful to her and that what that conveys to an audience member in a very subtle way. My mom really felt like she was doing the right thing most of the time. Um, but I think where everyone failed, moms, managers, lawyers, everybody, um, no one ever asked me how I was doing. Um, my emotional state was equated with how well I was doing you know, in my career. And so the better I did in my career, the more they just assumed I was fine. That to me is what film does that I think is so wonderful and, and why I like making them. We're going to take a quick intermission and hear from some Letterbox members out there in the world who have left voice messages for us. Bill and Ted's movies are just perfect to watch when you need a good laugh or a smile on your face sometimes. The charisma of the duo, just combined with the goofy adventures that they go on together, just creates some sort of euphoria when you watch the films. It also serves as a great reminder to look past the difficulties life throws at us, and just try to live in the moment and enjoy yourself. If I had one request for Bill and Ted right now, it'd be to please visit us in 2020. Hi, I remember that the first Bill and Ted movie is an amazing comedy, probably the best we've ever had, peak cinema. And, you know, they had great hair, great actors. <laughs> Hello, so I'm a young fan going through the release of a Bill and Ted movie for the first time, and it's honestly an amazing experience. 
They let me know that I can have fun, even though I may have some huge responsibilities in the future. These movies inspire me to be excellent to others, to learn history, and to party on no matter what life throws at me. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, we're talking a lot about time, so it feels like we should probably move to the the topic of the day, which is <laughs> when this podcast comes out, uh, a moment, an unprecedented moment in the history of Bill and Ted fans has happened, which is... You gave us a third movie. <laughs> yeah, we, is... we, it was not easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you have the experience now of producing that film, not just being uh, one of the co-stars, but, uh, I mean, it just feels like such a love letter to fans, to fathers and daughters, to music, to William Sadler, and to movies. So, first of all, we want to say thank you. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you guys. And secondly, before we dive in, I mean, what was your favorite film when you were 10? You gave us a, a great list of um, B-sides and rarities, uh, films that you have loved through through your life. Um, but, you know, they were quite obscure. I'm interested to know, were there any kind of blockbuster Hollywood faves that you absolutely glommed onto when you were a boy? Um, let's see, blockbuster. I mean, I was, you know, I lived in a family of artists and uh, I basically lived at the university where my mother taught dance. So a lot of the films I saw were art house movies um, or Chaplin movies or Fred Astaire movies or whatever. Um, obviously, I went to the movies in terms of mainstream movies from my era. Sure. I mean, I loved Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, I absolutely loved that film when, yeah. uh, when it came out. Um, I liked Star Wars. I didn't really become a Star Wars person until Empire Strikes Back, which I absolutely loved. Um, I liked Star Wars. I, I loved Empire Strikes Back. I had a big impact. Indiana Jones, uh, oh my God. The, the first Raiders, um, I think was the only movie I ever saw twice in one day. I literally... I went to that movie at the Astor Plaza Cinema in Times Square. I think I was already on Broadway doing, I would have been doing Peter Pan by then. And I think it was between whatever, matinees or whatever. And I remember seeing that movie with my friend, walking out of the theater, buying a ticket, and just walking right back in for the next showing. <laughs> yes! Um, I guess the only time I've ever done that in my life. So, I mean, there was, you know, I really, I really came up when Spielberg was... Um, was absolutely blowing our perception of the movie going experience uh, apart. And, and it did feel that way. Like the, his movies were events, you know, when uh, Jaws was the first big event. And I saw that when I was 10 um, and it was, uh, and Superman, the Chris Reeve Superman. Easy miss. I've got you. you you've got me. Who's got you? Was an event. Oh my God. Uh, yes. and were, you could feel this sort of shift um, in in the way you went to the movies from the way you had gone to the movies before those types of films. And um, and it was very exciting, you know, because I had been a cinephile as a child and I, the movies meant a lot to me. And like even at six, seven, eight years old, my walls were filled with with photographs of, of Chaplin and Keaton and Hitchcock and Fred Astaire. And, and I was really kind of an obsessive for Hollywood and old Hollywood. And um, are you still? Oh well, of course, but now I'm I'm in yeah. the you know I'm in the business, so it's it's different. Yeah. But I mean, then it was just very innocent and childlike, and and uh, and so you could feel this this change. And the way that I that I experienced that change was that uh, this is why I love Tarantino's uh, Once Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much. Is I, I came to L.A. when I was 
13 on the national tour of King and I with Yul Brynner and we played the Pantages theater for a while. And I was a complete like film and theater obsessive and Hollywood in 78, which is when I was there was, was still old Hollywood. And it was like the Brown Derby and like we had Lucille Ball and James Coburn backstage and Natalie Wood and like, and for someone like me, I might jaw was on the floor. But the next time I came back to LA, which was only a couple years later, in the sort of post Spielberg, Donner, Lucas version of, of Hollywood, it was completely different. And I'm really glad I got to experience both. Like I got to experience that kind of once upon a time in Hollywood, LA, where Tarantino has, you know, that beautiful scene of Brad Pitt driving around, all the lights coming on, which was such an unbelievable nostalgia zap for me. Oh. I, I, I was in, yeah. remember that LA so well, and it was so palpable and it's so it's the best scene in the movie. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I mean, I said that at the time I could have watched 30 hours of that. I didn't ever want it to end. I really could have, I could have watched. That's your, yeah, that like scene an, is like your, your ASMR, right? You could exactly. Just on a and, yeah. yeah. Like an avant-garde <laughs> film. that's like 25 hours long. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, but that that Hollywood was gone when I came back after film school, which was really only a few years later. And 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 we now lived in this kind of Spielberg, Lucas, Donner Hollywood, and um, and it was exciting. Like I, you know, I got to do Lost Boys in '86, which was really an experience of that new Hollywood. It was like Hollywood firing on all these cylinders in, in the blockbuster era. Um, very, it was very interesting. Like mentioning the time that you spent uh, at, at, at film school in New York and sort of being there at a specific time of, of photography and filmmaking and then looking at, uh, at Zappa and the thing that struck me the most about the story you told in Zappa is that he in his lifetime struggled to find the musicians to make the sounds that he wanted to hear but also in his lifetime classical music as we know it, inverted commas, changed and we got the Kronos Quartet and we got the Ensemble Modern and suddenly he had the people he could conduct to make the music he'd always wanted to hear. Instead of just playing your notes, style the note, put some sort of different vibrato rates on it, you know, you're, that's the one note you have in life, you're really going to play the shit out of it and you're a big chance to be a star with one note. Here we go. <laughs> before he died and it just was like such a relief oh my god I can't describe what a what a relief it was as a viewer to to have been taken on that journey and um yeah just hearing you talk about sort of old Hollywood and then blockbuster Hollywood it feels it feels very similar about um I guess I don't know if there's a question in here or more of a ramble yeah. about about landing and <laughs> yep. in, in specific you know times in space yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the question in that is, is kind of the question that I had about the movie going into it, which is, is what, does, what does it look like from the inside of a person, an artist, to live at the time that Zappa did where these huge shifts were happening in culture? It was not without some experience. My, my parents, who were uh, you know, more of Zappa's age, they were modern dancers and they had a lot of, you know, they had a lot of integrity and they had a lot of specificity towards how they did what they did. And they relied on grants. What I loved about Frank Zappa my whole 
life was that, you know, people thought of him as this rock and roll guitar hero. He was an independent artist who self-financed, who was not making gazillions of dollars. And it was very tricky for him to make the art that he wanted to make. And to do that from the 60s to the 70s into the Reagan era, when everything became corporatized and Reagan basically killed the NEA, the National Mm. Endowment for the Arts, which almost bankrupted my dad. Um, oh my my God. Dad, well, my dad ran a modern dance company, which which survived on grants from the NEA. And it became very difficult for his company to survive during the Reagan era and, and beyond. And so I had a very personal relationship to watching artists who really believed in what they did and did not want to shift from what they did, but had to rely on changing tastes, changing paradigms and kind of onerous governments or very anti-art oriented uh, governments, which is what we, you know, really faced hard in the '80s. Obviously, we're facing that again right now. But it was, mm-hmm. you know, the the birth of MTV and the kind of corporatization of music, and uh, in tandem with with Ronald Reagan's eight years, was like a death knell to a lot of art. And um, and it really, you know, in a way, Zappa didn't survive it. Like it obviously it didn't kill him literally, but um, it, it was a very rocky period for him. And you're right. He he managed to just make it to the other end as he was diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, and and get his music performed the way he had always wanted to hear it performed as he's dying essentially. Um, and my de- my father also died uh, prematurely, and and uh, you know it, so I had you know some kind of emotional connectivity to that story and to the idea of what it meant to to live in in that era uh, from when things were so radical and Zappa was at the forefront of the sexual revolution and the art revolution, the music revolution. And he was the first major musical artist into Laurel Canyon before everyone else flowed in because he was a little older than everyone else. And he was really a leader in so many areas. And then by the eighties was kind of cast aside um, and had to find his way while he still had all of those, you know, ideals. Um, super interesting. And again, sort of just in the nick of time. And yeah, from one member of the prematurely dead dad's club to another, I see you, I hear yeah. you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and speaking of in the nick Sorry of time, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about that other movie. Uh, speaking of which, Jack has an existential time crisis oh, that he'd like to share with you. Okay. <laughs> oh, this bubbles my mind. And first of all, I just want to say that this is not a complaint. This is not a problem I have with the film. And obviously the sequels negate all these paradoxes. Bill and Ted has no flaws. You know, that's irrelevant. But there's an intentional plot hole that is just mind-boggling the more you think about it. But my point is that when you overthink the film's logic, it kind of clears your mind. It's a zen, tree falling in the woods, nobody the hero thing. Don't worry about anything. So unlike most time travel movies, the film quickly establishes that there is one timeline only. You know, Ted wills the keys, the tape recorder, the trash can, the message telling them to duck. These are just narrative shortcuts, but they demonstrate that the present day is completely unaffected by the disappearing historical icons, whatever they learn about the future. So there was never, ever a time when Bill and Ted did not duck and were foiled. Therefore, although the third film writes around this, an excellent adventure. There's no possible alternate timeline where the future is as desolate as Rufus says. There are no ifs. There is no risk of Bill and Ted failing. In Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, there is no free will. They fall in love <laughs> with the babes because they tell themselves to. But I think this ties into its theme of destiny, even though it alleviates the plot's 
pressure. I mean, why does Rufus go when he goes? He could go anytime. He has all the knowledge. He has no choice. It was fated. However, when they meet themselves outside Circle K... You better hurry, because you don't have much time. What do you mean, Rufus? We got ten hours left. Mm -hmm. You got two hours. Huh? Ted, you forgot to wind your watch again. And after you reminded yourself not to. Well, I better remind myself again. Ted, don't forget to wind your watch! Thanks, Thanks Rufus. Rufus. They are caught in an infinite time loop, infinite Bill and Ted's, which obviously they use in the third one. So despite this one timeline premise, we're only dropping in on one of infinite identical timelines. Correct. Maybe every time you watch it, it's a new Bill and Ted. Yep. So they didn't even have a beginning because future Bill and Ted introduced Rufus to their past selves. So there was no first time that that happened, or at least it's not in the film. Anyway, that's my existential crisis when I was 10. Yeah, you know what? That's interesting. We, we discussed this on on um, along the way on developing three, and and we, we brought in a friend of ours. I actually I met him through Ed. He was a close friend of Ed, uh, Ed Solomon, the writers. Um, he's become a very dear friend of mine. His name is Spiros Michalakis, and he's one of the world's leading quantum physicists. And he runs the he's one of the people who runs the quantum division at Caltech, and he does all of the science stuff for Ant Man and the other Marvel movies and James Cameron and. He did all of our time stuff in this movie. Um, and what we start to, to, to deal with in this film to kind of answer that conundrum you're talking about um, is the whole notion of quantum entanglement, um, which we, we dance along um, via, I mean, I don't want to give all of this away. I don't know when this is coming out. We dance along it via one of the characters in the film who's, who's kind of our science explainer. Dude, this is way worse than we thought. So this is some kind of error in our holographic dual field? Or is it a Wilsonian loop causing a temporal singularity? Well, seems to me your classical tautological causal circuit. I don't know. Seems like textbook entanglement to me. Um, yeah, I wanted to know how Spiros <laughs> felt about being embodied by that particular. Well, he was, he was actually on set for a lot of that, talking him to him directly. Uh, so oh, great! It, it was great, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. And then the second one, Station, was actually that that science mm. to a degree. But um, so that there is a notion of of there being. Uh, being uh, what is essentially your timeline or the timeline that represents your destiny um, and the notion of multiple timelines and, uh, and, or infinite potential timelines. Um, and then what is the question of time period and whether it's linear at all um, to your point about kind of the circular loop of its future Bill and Ted that introduced Rufus to Bill and Ted we, are, we have the capability of, of planting whatever obstacle objects we need in order to fulfill whatever obstacles we face um, at all times. And we've had well into the night conversations about the science of this and how it works. Um, thankfully for the audience, none of us are, are physics geniuses or the movies would be really boring. Um, <laughs> But we have, so happy to hear that. yeah. But we have we have wrestled with the same conundrum that you are wrestling with. Well, I'll leave it at that. It's funny when Jack and I were talking about his existential time crisis. I was I was thinking more about. Um, I'm more interested in how Bill and Ted face the music solves a kind of cultural time crisis, which is which is that there were a few things, well, one slur in the first and second films that, you know, we all kind of wish weren't there now, but they were there then. And how how you solve that now, plus the deliberate move to make Bill and Ted's children daughters. 
Yeah. Or at least, or at least, you know, fluid. Uh, at least not sons. Dude, this is transcendent. Is this Fillmore 66? No, Mario Kart 67, that second sound oh. check where they did that red thought amazing grace. Oh. How's it How's going, going Dad? Dad? How's going, How's going, girls? How's therapy? Uh, it's doing okay. Yeah. Hey, Dad, by the way, Gramps was wrong. The wedding song was most luminous. Oh, thank you, B. Glad you dug it, Billy. No, seriously, Uncle Ted. When did you get so excellent on theremin? Oh. You're playing rivaled, and I'm not kidding, Clara Rockmore. Oh, thanks, T. Clara Rockmore was definitely an inspiration. Yeah. Uh, and Uncle Bill, yeah. the throat singing. I mean, it, it was a whole new level of eloquence. Mm -hmm. Some serious Bugu Kume. Wow. Your musical acumen is most impressive, girls. <laughs> And um, yeah, all of those sorts of you know cultural time crisis solutions you you brought to three, which feels like I just I mean I was so happy to be the teenager I was when Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure came out, but I would be just as happy to be a teenager now watching Bill and Ted face the music because of what you've done. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the you know look, we live in a very fractious, divisive time, and we didn't when we when we, I mean, we and it's been divisive for a long time. But when the, the film was written almost ten years ago, so it wasn't written in in the current political climate we're in and administration, and it wasn't w written to be quote woke uh, unquote because you know we we didn't have the the climate uh, even anything approximating the climate we're in now when this entire thing was was. Uh, was laid out. That being said, this was a film that each film has been written for its time. And this film was written for its time. And we very thankfully live in a time um, where uh, the idea of gender fluidity is, is much more acceptable. It's certainly always, I mean, I come from a family of modern dancers, so none of this has been <laughs> alien to me no. my entire <laughs> life. Right. Um, I mean, I had, you know, I had trans babysitters when I was three years old um, in, the sixties. So, um, uh, but it is becoming more culturally acceptable and it is becoming more a part of the, of the natural fabric of the world around us. So, you know, Chris and Ed wanted to write a movie that felt authentic to the world that we live in. The, the daughters was, was actually purely about not wanting to replicate Bill and Ted as, as, <laughs> as youth. I mean, it was, they, there was a writing problem. They, they sat down originally and thought, well, if we make these, you know, their, their kids' sons, then we're stuck writing Bill and Ted again. Like we're basically, yeah. you know, we've done, they'd done that. They made two movies with Bill and Ted at that age and they didn't want to do it again. They wanted to explore uh, what that kind of innocence and um, the, the sort of idiosyncrasies of that family, what that family produces through a different gender. Um, it just gave them more comic and, and emotional possibility. Um, so but I will, I will say that there was an intention, you know, and it's not a political thing at all. It is a, it is a tonal thing uh, because Rufus was going to be deceased and that there that was a decision that was made early on that the best way to handle Carlin's death was to have it be Rufus's death. It was just to be truthful and to yeah. say, you know, there's, you know, to your point about time, you know, on, on this timeline, you know, Rufus was not immortal. He was going to die at some point. And at the, the point of the story, he is no longer with us, which naturally shifted the film to a much more matriarchal perspective. Um, meaning it would be Rufus's daughter that would come back. It would be the relationship between Rufus's daughter and uh, Rufus's, uh, his wife, his widow, um, and yes. Kelly's mom. The wonderful um, Helen Taylor. Oh, oh my, oh my gosh, she's so good. Yeah, um, and so Kristen Shaw as Kelly is so good. Um, yeah. 
so uh, so that kind of naturally gave us a much more uh, sort of matriarchal and feminine perspective for certain aspects of the movie, which was also nice. It was just it was something that was really fun to play with. And uh, well, I'll tell you, tell you why else it's nice. It's and I'm sure that there are uh, theses on this all over the internet, but I haven't gone looking for them. But Bill and Ted are motherless sons, you know, and and, yeah. and have been. I mean, Missy aside. Sure, Missy. I mean, mom. Bill and Ted are motherless sons, and so at some point, you need to kind of address the fact that they've been they that that, that maybe the reasons they are why they are is because they're missing half of their kind of you know heteronormative parenting yep. experience. Yeah, and we and we talk about that a lot internally because we're obviously something that Keanu and I were aware of on Bill and Ted One. We were like, "Where's our moms, you guys?" Um, <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, uh, so uh, and and why did our moms leave us with our dads? I mean, yeah, yeah. and also and we've got big problems with it. Like our dads aren't great, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. we, you know, for us uh, as actors, it was actually really helpful. It's not anything that the audience ever needed to know about. It was subtext that Keanu and I played with each other, but we always assumed from the beginning with Bill and Ted one that that these guys actually were born out of quite a bit of pain and not um, just all super happy go lucky all the time. But they had a you know, they had a deep love for each other and for the world and they kind of stuck together. Um, and that was kind of one of, one of the things that bonded them as friends was they had, you know, they did not come from, from easy family lives and everything was not hunky dory at home and they were missing moms and they, and they had dads that were actually very stressful on them. And that's something that we, that was like, we landed in Phoenix to start working on the movie. And that's something that he and I said to each other almost immediately. It was like, you realize we don't have moms and we've got, we both have very problematic dads. Like that's got to inform who we are to some degree. <laughs> you, know? you know, when Jack and I were talking about the sort of mechanics of the movie, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of things I really wanted to ask you, or at least pass, ask you to pass on to Ed and Chris, you know, that, um, the, the movies are, are about time, but in this one, it feels like more specifically and possibly because they are more far more experienced themselves, but it feels like Ed and Chris are literally playing with the concept of time, you know, as it's laid out in a film script. You know, the mechanics of script writing, they've kind of laid them bare in a sort of script writing masterclass for anyone who dares to look. You know, like literally when at one point um, Bill or Ted is looking at the watch and saying, how long to go, dude? What time is it, dude? 58 minutes. Okay, let's go. I paused to see how long the film had to go. And it was as long as, and you, you know, I'm sure you know all of this, I'm but so also the, yeah. the sort of very obvious, almost cheesy, but always totally brilliant way that the stakes are laid out. You know, sometimes the story doesn't make sense till you get to the end. Yeah, they're very talented writers and they, and they did absolutely say, you know what, everyone's always talking about the time clock, the time clock, the time clock in these movies. Well, let's just build the damn thing into the movie Perfect. itself. That was yeah, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> conscious nice. on please, that oh, yeah, please pass that on. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> and then the other the other thing is that that's always stuck out uh, about these films is the integrity that's built into the um the casting and production decisions. You know, the 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 people who play the the supreme trio in, in film one and the fact that I, I knew before I Googled that the drummer that is who is collected from yep. 
you know, um, the, the yeah. stone age, uh, would be somebody of importance in the music world. Yeah, she's one of the greatest drummers we have. And we were, <laughs> yeah, we were very lucky to have her in the, in the film. And she's also a lovely person. Yeah, it just feels really important to to acknowledge to, to you and to pass on to the team that there's, a, there's an integrity that we appreciate in those decisions. Yeah, well, the first the first movie was very low budget, and we didn't have like a really high end crew, but we had Roy Forge Smith as our art director, production designer, who did all the Python movies. And uh, it was so great to have him, and we just Keanu and I just followed him around talking Python. I'm sure we drove him insane, but <laughs> followed him around talking about Holy Grail and all day long every day oh my god that's so beautiful yeah yeah and i'm obsessed with clara rockmore so thanks for that reference yeah, yeah. as well <laughs> yeah yeah no it's all good um i'm guessing uh jack has a statistic to share with you about sequels and uh, oh, the time yeah. between them i mean this the, the this bill and ted sequel is in the top five of the year gaps from the originals Wow. Mary Poppins and Blade Runner and Mad Max. No, and I, I mean, but Mary Poppins, I, I guess in terms of original cast. I mean, who yes. can be Mary Poppins at this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I thought about that with Mark five. Hamill because, yeah, because Mark Hamill came back after probably that many decades as Luke is probably oh, probably the one other thing I can think of where, like, where the a actual actors came back the same actors came back this many years later to keep going in the role. And final question. Uh, we ask we ask all filmmakers this. After mm -hmm. we've watched your movie, or in fact, uh, because it's you, Alex Winter, all three of your films that are out this year, and that's a little bit greedy and exciting, what should we watch next? Um, well, I mean, the, the the things I've been seeing that I love have, no, have really nothing to do with my work at all. Um, though I guess comedy-wise, Palm Springs was pretty great. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, actors under heavy prosthetics that do amazing things. I would recommend Tom Hardy's work in Capone, which is his, he's amazing in that film. Uh, but you know, look, doc wise, the painter and the thief is, is an absolute oh. must. Um, I'd say if you haven't seen uh, Vitalina Varela, the Pedro Costa movie, yeah. you should watch that. <laughs> And then just clear the next month to watch all of his films uh, uh, repeatedly <laughs> until you understand them or at least in, can appreciate them. I don't think you need to understand them as much as appreciate them. But I, I'm just blown away by his work and everything he does always knocks me sideways in a, in a beautiful way. Um, and uh, and I would be stating the obvious to say that probably the best movie out, uh, such as movies are out right now, is 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 still First Cow in my opinion. So, um, I would thank you for that. Yeah, Kelly Reichardt, thanks you for that. And yeah. um, have you have you tried making oily cakes? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. But but you know, I'm living somewhat like the characters in that film right now. I think we all are to some degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Oh, thank you so much for your time. It's an thank absolute you. pleasure from two fans. Uh, yeah, yeah, again. Likewise. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much, you guys.
thanks to Alex Winter for being on the show. And thanks to you, Jack. How do you feel about getting your existential time crisis sorted out? Well, that was 10-year-old me's dream made. The Letterbox show is recorded in Los Angeles and Auckland and edited by Morgan Avery. The music is Hitchcock by the Phoenix Foundation. And our podcast artwork is by Anne Davenport. You'll find links for all the films and lists Alex mentioned in the podcast description. Showbiz Kids is available now on HBO. Bill and Ted Face the Music is out now in cinemas and on demand. And Zappa is coming to screens around Thanksgiving. That's us. Next week, Jack's back to talk about the year's best documentaries so far. And we have the directors of The Fight. In the meantime, be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes. Dude, I think we came too early. These other us's don't have the song. Why don't you go write it yourselves instead of trying to steal it from us? You're the one who couldn't write it, Ted. <gasps> what? What are you talking about? Oh, no, no way. way. Yes, yes way! way.